0: So this evening we come <coughs> to the parsha of Pinchas. <clears throat> it's also the parsha that heralds in, in many years, the three weeks. And uh, the Hasidim say the reason why we like to to lay in Pinchas in the three weeks is because Pinchas has the parsha of apportioning the land, and we look to have a, a, inject a measure of nechama and optimism within these days, that they should turn to become uh, different types of days um, in our times. And <coughs> Pinchas starts, as it always does, in the middle of the story. That is to say, last week, in the end of Parshas Balak, we had what's called Masse Zimri, the act of Zimri, that brazen act with uh, that Midianite princess, and Zimri's act of uh, zealotry, running them through. <coughs> Last week is Mas Zimri, and this week is Ischar Pinchas, the reward of Pinchas. And he's given a number of things. Each one of them needs really to be uh, explained and understood, an everlasting covenant of priesthood, brisi shalom, uh, a covenant of peace, whatever that means, peace with whom. And there is a famous comment of the Medrash, with regards to Shar Pinchas, the reward for Pinchas. And that is, says the Medrash, Bedinhu Sheyitol Bedinhu, It is <coughs> correct and appropriate that he should receive his reward. And as we can appreciate this line of the Medrash, HaMedrash Hazeh Omer Darsheni because uh, if it takes something like that an act of Pinchas in order for him to be justly receiving his reward so what does that mean for the rest of us we try and do our mitzvahs and do the right thing and uh, Pinchas was the the one person (coughs) about whom the Medrash says Bedinu oh that's that's just and correct that he should receive his reward isn't it always just and correct and there are many, many answers given uh, over the generations to this medrash. But a very interesting approach is to be found in the Sefer Shemishmuel of the Sokotchev Rebi a Shmuel, the uh, second uh, Admor of Sokotchev, son of the Abne Nezer, <coughs> grandson of the Kotzkev Rebbe. And the Shemishmuel begins by directing our attention to a comment of the Ramban in the end of Parshas Vaischanan. In the end of Ba'eschanan, we actually have a question of one of the sons. And interestingly, of course, we know the four sons from Seder night, Maha Edus, he, he is called the wise son. Maha Edos, Vachukim, And on Seder night, we say to him, to the wise son, Emafdirin mafdirin achar But in original context, in the Chumash, in the end of Parshas Baris Khanan, when he is asking the question, what are all these mitzvahs? He's not asking on Seder night, and he's not asking about Korban Pesach specifically. He's asking about mitzvahs generally. There's no context of Korban Pesach there. Obviously, it is adapted for Seder night. But his question is about mitzvahs generally. Interestingly, the answer to his general question about mitzvahs in the Chumash, is avodim Hayinu. Because that is the beginning of the answer about mitzvahs generally. Avodim Hayinu. But as the psukim <coughs> go on, the, uh, the final pasuk of Peregvav says, Utsudokotie <laughs> Briefly paraphrasing or synopsizing, we say Avodim Hayinu be be mitzvah, Hashem took us out, He gave us the mitzvahs, and that's what it's all about. But we conclude by saying, And it will be tzdoka for us. Tzdoka, Kindness. (coughs) When we keep this mitzvah, When we keep each and every mitzvah, it will be tzdoka for us. And we want to get a simple reading as to what that Pasuk means. A simple read as to what that Pasuk means. What's the tzedakah that we will get if and when we we, we fulfill the mitzvahs? And says Ramban, he has an, uh, two approaches. But the second approach is it refers to the reward for mitzvahs. If we keep the mitzvahs, <coughs> we'll receive reward. But that reward is called tzedakah, and tzedakah means charity. And that challenges the way that we might relate to reward for mitzvahs, because after all, <coughs> if you keep the mitzvahs. So you're deserving of your reward. To use the classic uh, Hebrew phrase, "Magieli," I deserve it," says Ramban. nanu Two lines from Ramban: nanu to Tov, Hashem will give us good reward. kala for performing all these mitzvahs. Kara ha- you see, you note, the Torah referred to the reward for mitzvahs as tzedakah. Tzedakah is charity. Why are they charity? Didn't we earn the reward by keeping the mitzvahs? Says Ramban, not really. <coughs> because if a servant is owned by the master, <coughs> he has to serve the master. And if he does, and if the master then even gives him reward, that is above and beyond what is required. What the Ramban is doing is recalibrating our perspective on what we call reward for mitzvahs. Our notion is, I did the mitzvah, I deserve reward in return. But Ramban says, no, you do the mitzvah because we're de Hashem. And we belong to him and we follow his command. The very notion of receiving reward is an added measure. It's a measure of kindness. Not only do you have to do the mitzvahs, but if you do, you'll get reward. But that's called stokah. <clears throat> that is the very important uh, statement of the Ramban there. However, it turns out That a person can never really say, I deserve my reward for doing my mitzvah. Unless it's something that he doesn't have to do. The thesis of the Ramban is, the mitzvahs are obligations. So there is no requirement for Hashem to give us a reward. We have to fulfill these obligations. But what if we do a mitzvah which is not an obligation? What if we go beyond the letter of the law, beyond what we're required to do, so we're now no longer in in the zone where, well, that's your obligation. It's beyond my obligation. Corresponding to such an act, a person really does deserve reward as a matter of of din. And such an act was binchas. When what Pinchas did with Zimri and Cosby was not something he was obligated to do. In fact, it was so not obligated that if he asked whether he should do it or not, as we know, the famous situation, Halacha ve'en Morin came. It's the Halacha, but no one would tell him to do it. It is absolutely not an obligation. And therefore, because Pinchas nonetheless proceeded to perform this act, (coughs) which was the right thing to do, even though he wasn't obligated to do. This is one case where the Midrash makes a fascinating pronouncement. (inaudible) He justly deserves reward for the act that he wasn't absolutely required to do. So this should cast the whole domain of beyond the letter of the law in a new light for us. For now, of course, we always know where possible one should go beyond the letter of the law, within the letter of the law, however we, we describe it. It actually changes our relationship with the reward for the mitzvah. As long as it's the letter of the law, any reward we receive is called tzedakah. As soon as it's an added measure, beyond, so then we're in an amazing realm which is called bedinhu sheyital Sahar So that's... A brief comment, <coughs> again, classic observation from the She Mishmuel <coughs> in the beginning of the Parsha. But I'd like to move a little deeper now into the Parsha. We're skipping over the, uh, the, the many numbers and the uh, counts of each tribe and each family. And I'd like to go to an area of the Parsha which, in one form or another, has implications for us. And that is <coughs> the Parsha's. Hatamid. We know that there's many Korbonos. <coughs> we hear a lot from Parshas Pinchas in Maftir time, whether it's uh, Rosh Chodesh or uh, the Yomim Tovim, they all come from Pinchas. And it all begins with the, with the Parshas Tomit, which is the, daily, the two daily Korbonos, which is the beginning of Perik Kaf Ches. And as we know, and, and indeed, uh, many people say, this section, these Pesukim of Parshas Tamed, uh every day, at least every morning, they were offered twice a day. Some people say them morning and afternoon, others just in the morning. In any case, these are the two daily Timidim. Uh, as the Pasuk describes them in Perek Kavcheth, Pasuk Gimel, But you shall say to them, Zeho These are the fire offerings that you should give to Hashem, or offer to Hashem, these two lambs, two per day, as the next posse goes on to say, one in the morning, and one in the afternoon. Well, we currently do not have the base HaMikdash, hence the days that uh, are, we are about to enter, unless uh, something changes. <coughs> and therefore, we do not have these two daily korbanos. However, we do have something, because of them. Because there is an uh, an opinion in the Gemara, a tradition in the Gemara, that our three daily tefillos correspond to the sacrificial order and service in the Beis HaMikdash of the Tmidim. We have three daily tefillos, shakras, mincha, Ma'ariv, of morning, afternoon, and evening, and the way the Gemara describes, these all correspond and were instituted in, in in lieu of these korbanos. Shachris in the morning corresponds to the morning korban, morning tamid. Minchen in the afternoon corresponds to the afternoon tamid. And then Myriv in the evening corresponds to the burning of the sacrificial parts that were left over from the day. And you have, therefore, these three avoda slots translate into three davening slots, the three daily tevilus. So that is a practical reverberation from these psukim with regards to these korbanus. Interestingly, there is a machlokas in the Gemara, a dispute in the Gemara with regards to mariv. One wouldn't really know it anymore. But back in the day, it was a heated debate with regards to mariv, and the way that Gemara explains it or, or expresses it is <coughs> whether Marev is Rishus or Chova. Whether Marev, translate literally, is voluntary or obligatory. Marev. That's, that's the simple translation of Rishus. It's not so straightforward. Tosfos assert that even Rishus means it's not an absolute obligation, but still uh, not just a, a, a a permissible thing. It's certainly something that one that should do. And the Rambam says that by our time, the Jewish people have accepted Mayrev on themselves as a Chauva anyway, which is why we could never really tell the difference looking around nowadays, hopefully. But the question is <coughs> um, what's behind this machlokus? It's an interesting thing. And in fact, this machlokus had uh, historic significance. Because this was the question that ultimately led to the to the deposing of Rabbi Gamliel as the Nasi. The way the Gemara explains it in the beginning of the fourth parak of Maseches Brachos, this question as to the status of Mariv, is it Rishus or Chauva, again loosely voluntary or, or obligatory, was the machlokus between in Inyavne? Inyavne, as we know, after the destruction of the Beis Hamigdash, the Sanhedrin moved to Yavne as per the request of Rabbi and Ben Zakkai Ten li Yavne vechachemeha, and it was uh, spared. The head of the Sanhedrin was Rabban Gamliel. He was the nasi, but his colleague Rabbi Yeshua had a different opinion than him in this matter. And one Talmud comes to Rabbi Yeshua and says, "Mariv, Rishus or Chova?" And Rabbi Yeshua said, "I think it's Rishus." But then he went to Rabbi Gamliel, the Nasi, and asked the same question, Rishus or Chover? Rabbi Gamliel said, Chova. And then a confrontation was inevitable. The next morning, the question was floated. My Rishus or Chover?" Rabbi Gamliel said, Chova. And everyone else was silent. And Rabbi Yeshua even tried to backtrack a little bit, possibly to avoid Machlokas. He didn't want a confrontation. But the issue was forced out. It came to a head. And it came out that he said that he holds that Marv is Rishus. And that was something that Rabbi Gamaliel responded to very heavy-handedly. And he required Rabbi Yeshua to be standing for the rest of the day. Which in their time, as Rabbi Magalius points out, was something of a demotion. In other words, the junior Tamidim would learn while standing up. If you were senior, you could already sit down. So to tell someone to stand up is basically like demoting them back to to a junior status. Now, the Chachamim felt that this was too much. It was not the first time that Rabbi Gamliel and uh, Rabbi Yeshua had a, a confrontation um, in these matters. There was the famous situation where actually Rabbi, Rabbi Yoshua expressed... Uh, identification and sympathy for a calculation whereby Yom Kippur would, end, would turn out on a different day than Rebbe Gamaliel said it did. And Rebbe Gamaliel ordered him to come to him with his, his money purse and his walking stick on the day that was uh, Yom Kippur for Rabbi Yeshua in order to keep things aligned, so on and so forth. The rabbis felt this was too much, and they made a move, and I don't know who told them they could do this, but they did, and they deposed Rabbi Gamliel. They felt it was too much, and that was the famous introduction of Rabbi Eliezer ben as the Nasi. They didn't want to appoint Rabbi Yeshua, even though he was, of course, qualified, but he's the machlokus. That's not right to do that. The Gemara says this. That's really too much for Rabbi Gamliel to be deposed and replaced by, by the one he had a Machlokas with. And the one that therefore that they chose was Rabbi Loza bin Azariah. Of course, he was too young. He was only 18. And uh, his wife said to him, no one's gonna to listen to you. You look like you're 18. And a miracle happened. And that's the Keven Shivim Shana. And now all of a sudden, everyone listens to him because he looks like he's, thir- he's uh, 70, which is amazing because people didn't forget that he's 18. But it just shows that if you look like you're 70, so then everything's different and it, and it deserves a miracle. Now, what's very important to appreciate before we move on in the the analysis here is to understand why Rabbi Gamaliel acted the way that he did. In other words, he's very harsh with Rabbi Yoshua, any sign of dissent, which of course is very difficult because Chachamim argue with each other the whole time. I mean, that's their job. It happens constantly. But somehow, there was at least certain Machlokasim, and, and it was considered unacceptable. So the way the mafarshim explain, and, and, and we'll, we'll follow up on this point, we need to appreciate that the time that this machlokus took place was a very delicate time in the history of the Jewish people. Namely, it was the period immediately following the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and the Beis HaMikdash had been with them for over 400 years. What that means is, and for us, and we must add, unfortunately, we can't relate to life with the Beis HaMikdash. But if you had it for 400 years, and then it was taken away, you, you couldn't adapt so easily to life without the Beis HaMikdash. It's hard for us to realize that the Beis HaMikdash was the center of Judaism. Judaism. To the extent that, with the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, there was perhaps a notion among the people that that's it. I mean, what is Judaism if not the Beis Hamikdash, and we don't have it anymore? Maybe, maybe we're over. And once again, for us, that's clearly not true. Judaism, in one form or another, uh, and is is thriving. In its, it's uh, different ways, we don't have the Beis Hamikdash. We like to think we're doing well. Of course, we understand we could be doing better, but we know that Judaism continues even without the Beis Hamikdash. That's thanks to people like Rabbi Gamliel, because what Rabbi Gamliel is doing is he's taking the remaining central pillar of Judaism, which is the Sanhedrin. But the Beis Hamikdash was the center of both of them, the center of Avoda and the center of the Sanhedrin. With the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash as the center of Avoda, the Sanhedrin endures, and therefore Rabbi Gamliel needs to emphasize that the authority of the Sanhedrin, as now the pillar that carries the Jewish people, is absolutely intact. And that's why there was such great sensitivity to at that stage at that those tentative and delicate uh, times when, when, when the authority of the Sanhedrin need to be established in no uncertain terms. That's why Rabbi Gamaliel acted as, as harshly as he did with Rabbi Yeshua, who was bringing up Machlokas at that time. Not a time for Machlokas. In the event, the rabbis still judged that it was too much to the extent that they deposed him. But that's just to get an insight into Rabbi Gamil. He needs to assure people that Judaism is its alive. Is it alive and well? It could be better, but it's still there. And in fact, and this, this is uh, discussed by the Telzer Rav, Rabbi Yosef Lev Bloch in his uh, very special svarim, Shiure Das, to understand that it's truth, that is guiding Rabbein Gamliel. But how do we know? How can you tell? It's it's very nice if it's true, but it's also equally possible that it isn't true. How do you know where Rabbein Gamliel's motivation is coming from? Said the Shure Das, Rabbi Yosef Le'Vloch, the answer is in the very next line in the Gemara. And sometimes we lose out because we stop the story before the punchline because we don't realize it's the punchline. But what does the Gemara immediately proceed to say? What did Rabbi Gamliel do the day he was deposed? Says the Gemara, he went right back to the Besa The Af Rabbi Gamliel, lo mona atzmo mi Besa Medrash afilu He didn't waste even one hour from getting back to the Besa Medrash. And when you think about it, says the Shure Das, that's where it comes out. <clears throat> in other words, if Rabbi Neel's heavy-handedness is a product of personal control, authority, one-upmanship and competition and so on and so forth, so he's lost? So how soon do you think it would be before you see him in, the, in that very same base HaMedrish that deposed him? I'd say at least a few days, maybe a few weeks, And maybe never. Because maybe Rebbe Gamliel would very simply open his own Basa Medrash for the party faithful. I mean, shuls get started over less. And here's Rebbe Gamliel, (coughs) and he's just been deposed. I mean, what a a, a blow. Professionally. Quote, unquote. And what does Rebbe Gamliel say? Oh, well, if I'm currently unemployed... May as well go back to learning. Where? Where else? Besamedrish. That's an emistika person. The very same fortitude of spirit that had him deal that way with Rabbi, with Rabbi Yeshua when he was the Nasi, has him mixing in with everyone else in the sukkah with his colleagues, shoulder to shoulder, within an hour of being deposed from being Nasi. That's important to to remember, especially as the the nature of the Besa Medrash changed once he was deposed. Because as the Gemara says, Rabbi was very selective in terms of who could learn in his Besa Medrash. Not just anyone could turn up. You had to qualify. The qualification was interesting. Your inside had to be as authentic as your outside. That's an interesting question as to how that could be ascertained. But when, new, when the new Nossi came in, he took away the, the Shomer, there was a Shomer at the door to check who was coming in. He, he, he fired him and they brought in hundreds of new benches. Which means, from Rabbi Gamliel's point of view, this isn't even the same Besar Medrash that, that he presided over. And maybe he didn't even think it was right that so many people should be learning there. And still he went right back there, because that's where you learn, in the Besar Midrash. And who do you talk to? To the people that fired you. About what? about the sugya, whatever, whatever they're learning. That's the, the very important comment of the of the Zarath to, to give that uh, perspective. But it was a machlokas was as to whether marav is rishus or chova. The question is, what's the basis of the machlokas? In other words, shachras, everyone seems to be in concurrence that is an obligation. Mincha, everyone is in agreement. It's an obligation. Comes Ma'ariv, machlokas. I mean, with all the ramifications and repercussions that it had. But why is there a machlokas about this? They agree on the first two. They disagree about the third. And here too, there's many explanations. But there's a classic comment, which is made by Rabbi Yaakov of Karlin, one of the two primary disciples of Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin, Rabbi Yaakov Karliner in his Tshelos Sutuvish Mishkenos Yaakov. And the Mishkenos Yaakov said, the two primary Talmudim of Reb Chaim of were Reb Yaakov of Karlin and Reb David Tevel of Minsk. So Reb Yaakov Karlin says, <coughs> you know, if you look in the Gemara, you'll see that there are actually two explanations provided for the basis or the background of the three daily Tfilos, of the three daily Davenings, Shachris, Mincha, and Maariv. We've mentioned one of them, namely <coughs> that it corresponds to carbonus. But there is another opinion, and that is Tfilos Ovos Tiknum, that the three daily Tfilis were an institution of the Avos. I mean, that is a massive divide. It's either Chazal later on, and Chazal are full of institutions. Anshei Knesset HaGadola, this is one of them. Or it's from before Matan Torah, at least the roots. That, that's a big divide. And we learn that Avram instituted Shachris Vayishkei Avraham Baboker, and Yitzchak instituted Mincha Vayetz Yitzchak Lasuach Las Basoda, Lifnos Erev, and Yaakov institutes Mayriv Vayivka Ba'Makom Kivah Hashamesh. So each of them, the avos have a have a tefillah, and the Gemara presents it as a machlokas. It's an interesting machlokas. I mean, it's a historical machlokas. Interestingly, the Rambam caused uh, much comment because he cites both of them in different places in the Mishnah Torah. In Hilchus Tefillah, the Rambam says, where the Tefillahs come from? From Korbanos. But in Hilchus Melachim, much, much further on, really towards the end of the final sections of Mishnah Torah, in the Malachim, in chapter 9, <coughs> Rambam brings the whole Gomorrah, how Avram introduced Shachris, Yitzchak, Mincha, Yaakov, Meiriv. So the only thing worse than having a Machlokas is not having a Machlokas. If it looks like one, the Rambam somehow has, has made room for both of them. But either way, <coughs> or be it as it may, it does seem to be a Machlokas, and the question is, does it make a difference uh, where the three tefillahs come from? Says the Mishkanah Yaakov, indeed it does what difference does that make or where will, where will the difference the two opinions be felt in Myriv why <laughs> because if we understand that the three fillers came from the others Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov all the others are equal there is no reason in the world to say that the Meiriv, which is the tefillah instituted by Yaakov, should be of any less an obligation than the first two, Shachar Semencha, from Avamein Yitzha. Yaakov is called Bechir Sheba Avos. He builds on their accomplishments and takes everything to a new level. Certainly no less than them. And therefore, <coughs> says the Mishkanah Yaakov, the opinion who says that Myriv is Chova is because he understands that the three daily Tvilas came from the three ovos, and Yaakov is no less than the, the other two. Myrib is no less than the other two. However, the opinion that, that says that Myrib is Rishus, relatively less than the other two, is because he understands that the three daily Tvilas, like the other side, that they come from the Karbonos. So... So, it's only the morning and the afternoon where you had a korban brought as a matter of obligation. But in the evening, <coughs> so what does arvis correspond to, according to that approach, to the burning of the sacrificial parts? Well, that's if they were left over from the, from the day. If everything was finished by the end of the day, nothing happened on the Mizbeach at night. And therefore, it wasn't a pure obligation per se, a categorical obligation. And that is why, says Mishkanis Yaakov, if you understand that the Tefillas come from the Korbanos, there's room to see why myriv would be considered Rishus, corresponding to the area of of the sacrificial order that was, so to speak, Rishus also. Not always an obligation, subject to circumstance. So this is a very interesting tying together of the halachic discussion of Tvillas Arves, which, which had so many uh, consequences there, and the, the root machlokos, where the three Tefillas come from, the ovos or the korbonos. Just one PS on the matter of uh, Tefillah and korbonos, because we seem to side with the understanding that our three Tefillas came from korbonos. Which led someone to ask the following very interesting question to the Noda Behuda. Namely, other tefillos, which are instituted in lieu of korbonos, they mention the korbonos in the tefillah. We refer, of course, to musaf. Musaf is undoubtedly instituted corresponding to the korbonos. It's called musaf. And because that's the case, we mention the korbanus of that musa. So apparently, the moral of the story is, if the davening is in lieu of a korban, talk about the korban. Mention the psukim. Musa for Shabbos, Musa for Shodesh, Musa for Yom Tov. And the same should be true for Shachris and Mincha. Why are there no psukim of sechata and, and, and Why don't we do to Shachris and Mincha, and maybe Myriv, to the Shemona what we do to Musaf, to bring the korbanos in and speak about them explicitly. That's an interesting question. And the answer of the No De Behuda <coughs> is that Shachos, Mincha, and Myriv are different than Musaf. As an obligation, they correspond to the three korbanos. But as an opportunity, a person in principle is able to daven them whenever he wants, however many times he wants. There is a concept of tefillas nedovah. For us, it could be that it's quite foreign. We feel that we have our hands full with, with the three for the time being. But there is a concept called tefillas nedovah, an, a voluntary additional tefillah. And this was a mindset that, that that exists, and certainly in Chazal, maybe should always exist. Rabbi Yochanan, Famously said, How a person should be tapping the whole day. So one certainly needs focus and, and uh, staying power, etc. and so forth. <coughs> but the Shmonasri is was originally designed as uh, three times a day at least. But if a person wants to, to say Shmonarasri four or five or six times a day, I raise them Shubah. It's like a voluntary korban. But now we understand, says the note of Yehuda, why you couldn't mention the psukim of the morning and afternoon korbanos, because then you would restrict the Shmonares Ray to those times, because you can only offer, offer one morning tamid, you can only offer one afternoon tamid, and therefore to bring the psukim of the korbanos in would have uh, locked the Tvila slots just to one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and therefore in order to release it from that no korbanos are mentioned officially or explicitly to allow for a profusion of Tvila. So there's a lot in a sense, there's a whole mindset that is behind the answer to this question which we should certainly do well to appreciate that idea of espalel, adam kula, to appreciate where it's coming from, even if we don't uh, necessarily immediately emulated in uh, our daily practice. So these are some of the practical questions that come out, or more correctly, questions that relate to our practice <coughs> that come out from the daily tmidim in our Parsha. But there is another plane of discussion in a quite a different direction, at which I believe to be a most profound and significant discussion, and it's also rooted in this section in the Chumash, in this section of a Parsha, the opening psukim of Perek Kavches, the two daily t'midim. As we know, the t'midim are accompanied by what's called nesech, a wine libation. The wine is poured out on the as and and that we know. We always say minchasov and isko, the meal offering, the wine offering. We know what nesachim are those wine libations. There is what I believe to be one of the most unusual discussions in the Gemara concerning the Nesach for these two daily korbanos. It's in Maseches, Yuma Daf Lamed Dalet. And what does it, what does it um, surround? Posig Zion. How much is the Nesach? We want to know. How much wine is used for this korban? Says Pasuk Zayin, we know the words. Vinesko Reviasahin, hahin The Nesach is a quarter of a hin. Fine. Now you know. That's quite standard for, for that type of korban. Revius hahin. Very good. Okay. <coughs> to read the words again. Vinisko. Its nesekh, is a revius a which is it? To which korban is the verse referring? What's the background to the question? There's two korbanos every day. There's the morning tammid shachar and the afternoon tammid Shaben They've both been mentioned so far in this section, and then the pasuk says, "And its nesach is a quarter of a hin of wine." Which one? Morning, afternoon. The answer is. Machlokas. According to the Chachamim, it's the afternoon, which has been mentioned most recently. But according to Rebbe Yud Anasi, it's referring to the morning korban, which was mentioned initially, originally. So to take stock so far, the Pasuk says, its Nesech is such and such an amount. Which one? Machlokas. Some say afternoon, some say the morning. Okay. Now whoever you are, What about the other korban that you feel the pasuk isn't talking about like if you're the chachamim and it's talking about the afternoon and says it needs a revias ahin how much does the morning need you know what the answer is says the gemara revias ahin also needs a revias why because the two t'midim are equated with each other through a means called the hekash which is a halakhic equation so in the end, they both need a Rubius. It was said with regards to the afternoon, but we derive the morning from the afternoon. That's the opinion of the Chachame. Okay, who's left? Rabbi, Rabbi Udanasi. He said that the pasuk, the, the uh, Korban the Pasuk is referring to is the morning Korban. That needs a rabia sain. What about the afternoon? Says Rabbi Udanasi, rabia sahin also why because it's equated to the morning and that's it so let's just take stock of where we are again because we'll realize that actually there's a fierce debate and everyone agrees with each other in other words it's just a question of where you start but everyone ends up in exactly the same place which korban is, is Posuk Zion referring to? Oh, that's a matter of opinion. Some say the afternoon, some say the evening. Ah, and what about the other one? Same. So everyone says, saying the same thing. I mean, we'd, we'd like to get our money's worth for, for our, our machlokas. But they're all in agreement. The whole question is, they're both a revius. Is it because the morning is like the afternoon, or like the afternoon is like the morning? I don't know. I mean, that's a question for the long winter evening. But it's not a machlokus. But it sounds like a machlokus. How is it? Or as we like to ask in our polished terminology, what's the afkeminah? What difference does it make? What is the practical ramifications of this machlokus? Says the tosvos, I'll tell you. What would be in a situation where they 're in the base of migdash and they only have enough wine to use for one of the carbonos? which one would it be? You know what the answer is says toswa, depending on who you are, the one that the pasta is talking about that 's the one that you 'll use it for if you have to choose. That's your choice. And that's what guides your choice. Because if you're the Chachamim, for example, and you understand that Pasuk Zion, the Pasuk is talking about the afternoon Korba. Now we derive hermeneutically, exegetically, through Medrash Halacha, we derive the morning from the afternoon. That may well be. And if you have enough for both of them, great. But if you have to choose, you choose the one that's mafurish in the Pasuk. And for the Chachamim, you'd wait till the afternoon, which is amazing. You'd wait till the afternoon. You would not do it in the morning. We might've thought, listen, do it in the morning. I hope for the best. Some Gavir will, will, will turn up with a, a quarter hin of wine. No. If you if until further notice, this is the only wine you have, save it for the one that the Pasuk referred to explicitly. And Rebbe would dispute that. Rebbe Nasi says, no. Because in his understanding, the pasuk is explicitly referring to the morning korban. If you have to choose, you choose the morning. And this, from this short toast was an a most profound idea emerges. Within the world that we call De'araisa. The world of Torah-level law. We're familiar with two levels. De'araisa and De'arbonic. But if it's Daraisa, it's from the Torah. Now, there should be no misunderstanding or misapprehension. Things that are learned from halachic Medrash, med- darshan and doubt, what, what we would say, are 100% Daraisa. I mean, there are very severe Daraisa laws that are learned through those methods. There are certain people who are liable to, to be uh, executed by the in derived from these types of Medrash Halacha laws. So Medrash Halacha, that is to say expounding things which are not mentioned explicitly through the technology of Medrash Halacha, is 100% to Arisa. And yet, if it's explicit in the Pasuk, it's 101% to Arisa. That is to say, the difference between them is not that one is de and one isn't, but one is de Arisa in a sense with a, a bolder font for the D and the other regular. It's all de Arisa, but there exists an internal hierarchy within them. And where does this come from? <clears throat> Rabbi Vasaman in the Kudras De Vre Sofrim <clears throat> explains very simply that the very fact that the Torah made a point of talking about this entity explicitly. Mm. That itself is taken as an indication of the significance that the Torah gives it, of the, great, of the higher relative significance that the Torah gives it. He, he By way of analogy, he, he recalls for us the well-known statement that we're, that we're all familiar with, with regards to the Torah's repetition of Eliezer's story back in Parshas Chayesara. We didn't think that we'd be going there from Parshas Pinchas. But Eliezer, the Torah tells the whole story of Eliezer finding a wife for Yitzhak, and Eliezer retells the story, and the Torah hosts the whole thing. And as the Medrash comments, Rashi cites, Yofa Shall have the others. You see how beloved is the conversation of the servants of the others more than the Torah of the of the children. Those are the Medrash's words. And how do you see how beloved it is to the Torah? The Torah makes room for it. The Torah gives it room. The Torah gives it a lot of print. It's a whole, another whole column in the uh, or could be. Or there's the, there's the number of lines. <coughs> so in the same way, there you see how he's making this analogy. In the same way that. The Torah, by repeating something, shows how beloved it is. So the Torah also, by stating something explicitly and not leaving it to be expounded, is, is an indication that it has a certain relatively greater significance, again, within the world of De'oraisa. Very, very fascinating discussion. And it's interesting to see, just in the interest of follow-up, reverberations of this idea, there's many, many Meforshim speak about it, I mean, it's, it's, it's riveting. All of a sudden, you have to know, what is the Halacha and where does it come from? <clears throat> In the beginning of next week's Parsha, Parshas Matos, the very first item we have, is Nedarim, right, Ishki Tido Neder, sorry, Ishki do Neder, okay, picking a neder. As we know, a nether can be revoked. It can be undone. A person can do what's called Hataras Nidorin, which is the simple understanding of what called Nidre is. Okay. Who do you turn to to revoke your nether, to undo your neder? Well, <coughs> we know you turn to a Bestin. Actually, there are two possibilities. Either you have what's called Yachid Mumcha, even one person, if he is an expert, however you define expert, does he need smicha with a capital S, that, that type of unbroken smicha, other type of expertise, one person alone can be Matthew if he's if he's a, a Mumcha. Or, if you can't find such a person, three people, three lay people, three Yotos. they have to be relatively conversant and knowledgeable, but they don't need to be experts. Those are your two options. One expert or three regular people. Let's see how Rashi states this. It's the opening Rashi in Parshas Matos. The source, by the way, that an expert, one expert can undo your neder comes from the word Roshi HaMatos, the heads of the tribes, who were considered to be experts, each one in their own thing. And therefore, it says Rashi, Lamad, we learn, You can undo your neder with one person if he's an expert. And if you can't find such a person, Okay, get hold of three regular people. What's very interesting about this Rashi is that when he gives us the two options, one is clearly preferred. Rashi did not say you have two options either a, an individual expert or three regular people one mumcha or three yotas? he didn't say that, he said it's one mumcha unless you can't find such a person ok, then go for three yotas. three yotas is, is so to speak bidiyevit. it's very interesting by the way because when we petition and certainly in the, the standard on Erev Rosh Hashanah when we petition a Bezdin of three we start by saying, "Shimmun dayone mumchim." hear ye now, my masters expert judges, which is interesting. if they really were experts you wouldn 't need three of them. One would be enough presume we 're being nice obviously we, we we want everyone to to respond uh, in an encouraging way there 's nothing better to get a, a good response than to call someone a din mumcha but and presumably it's de, it 's there covered and it 's all it's all heading in the right direction. But just to understand that in pure terms, a real mumcha can act alone. If there's three of them, it's because they're hediotos. The question is, how do we know which one is preferable? And why? Says the Chavos Yoyer, one of the great early Acheronim Halachic experts, Rav Yarechaim Bachrach, because look at the source from whence these are derived. Look at the source <coughs> from where these are I, I see the question. I'll, 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 I'll take it at the end if that's okay. The source for the yachid Momcher Rashi says, is the words Rashi Hamatos. Rashi Hamatos are written explicitly in the Parsha. Where does Tui Hadiotos come from? It comes from Medrash Halacha. From a Gezei shava, from a Halachic linkage, Zehadavar, Zehadavar, to get you to your, to your, uh, to your panel of three. And therefore says the Chavos Yar, since a Yochid Mumche, the notion of a Yochid Mumcha, undoing your nether is explicit in the Pasuk, while the notion of three hadyotos is darshaned from the Pasuk, even though they're both to Arisa, The first is preferred over the second. It is an absolute application of the idea that we saw in Tosos. And what's so interesting is that in the relationship between Pshat, what we call Pshat and Drash, the explicated and the expounded, in terms of the the relationship between them, sometimes Medrash Halacha can override what's written in the Pasuk, at least on a simple level, case in point, Ayin tachas ain, an eye for an eye. Simple reading of that pasuk couldn't be simpler. And it's explicit, an eye for an eye. But the medrash halacha, for reasons that it does, explains that it doesn't mean actually to put out the eye of the perpetrator. It means monetary compensation. So in that respect, when there's some form of tension between them, we actually give more credence to medrash halacha in terms of uh, the way forward practically. But when they're both heading in the same direction, we give more priority if we need to, to if we have to choose between that which is mefurash in the Pasuk. There is a great, much, a great deal more to, uh, to speak about this, but I just wanted to mention this idea, such an important concept that comes out from, from, the, from Parsha Satomit, very different than our mari of discussion of a few moments ago, uh, is this whole issue of mefurash versus nidrash, the explicated and the expounded. But there's still room, m- m- room to say more here within the context of, of the pshat, shall we say, and the drash. And it relates to just a little bit further on in the, the end of our Parsha, which again has the Musafim. And one of the Musafim is for Rosh Hashanah. And interestingly, the source for the mitzvah of blowing shofar in Rosh Hashanah comes from our Parsha which is unusual because most of the other mitzvahs for the Moadim, we know them from earlier on, Parshas more or even earlier. Parshas Benchas is seemingly purely to teach us about the Musaf. And yet, for some reason, it actually also teaches us the, the mitzvah of sounding the shofar. And where does that come from? In Perik Kaftes, Pasuk Aleph. Perik Kaftes, Pasuk Aleph. Again, Maftir for, for Rosh Hashanah. The seventh month, Tishrei, that is to say, counting from Nisan, Tishrei, on the first of the month, yelachem, a holy calling, asu, not to do work. Yom yelachem. said shall be a day of truah to you. That is the source in the Torah for the mitzvah of blowing shofar. Our parsha, Yom yelachem. Now, aside from that question, why did the Torah leave it till our parsha? It's important also to note that, as we know, there's two sounds that the shofar makes that, become, that are part of the mitzvah of shofar. There is the, tku, the, the, the trua and the tkia. Right? Tkiah is the longer sound, trua is the broken sound. What we call shavarim teruah are variations on the theme of teruah. Teruah means a broken sound. And between the two of them, they make up the shofar sounds, the, the uninterrupted note, the tkiya, and then the, the yes broken sounds, shavarim trua, etc., of those two sounds, tkiyah and trua, only trua is mentioned in the Torah in connection with Rosh Hashanah. Ever. In the Chumash. Uh, where? Well, in our Parsha, Yom Teruah. In Parsha's Emor, Rosh Hashanah is called Zichron Trua. But there is no mention in the Pasuk of tkiyah. But as we know, no shofar blowing is complete without tkiyah. It's part of the Torah mitzvah. Where does it come from? It comes from um, from Medrash Halacha. It comes from a gazera shava. Again, when two words are, are similar, exist in two different locations, there's transfer of information between those two. Where do we learn the tkiyah from? Tishrei Shavuah from Yovel. They're both Bachodish Hachavii. Those are your gazera shava words. Seventh month. And therefore, it turns out that tekiah is imported, so to speak, or is certainly inferred from Yovah. It's very interesting. And there's room to ponder why is it so, if we may ask. Of the two sounds, and you need both of them, why did the Torah write one of them, teruah, and leave the other one to be expanded through medrash And I believe that the answer is as follows. The tkia sound and the trua sound have different connotations. They have different associations. The trua sound is the sound of din, represents the attribute of divine justice, of, of judgment. Trua represents din. Tkia, that is the, the the trua is the broken. It's things that are broken about us, or maybe that should be broken. The tkia is the is this straight, smooth sound. Takur means embedded. It's everything that's right and as it should be. And that represents the divine attribute of mercy. Midas Where do we see this, by the way? This uh, parallelism? A pasuk that we say many times over the course of Rosh Hashanah. Allah Elokim bitrua Hashem bekol shofar. It's from that chapter of Tehillim we say seven times before hearing the shofar. We say it again in Musaf. Allah Elohim betruah. Elohim rises to the trua. Elohim, we know, is the name of Din. Elohim is Minasa Din. Hashem Yudke Vavke, which is the name of Divine Mercy, the Kol Shofar, with the uninterrupted sound of the Shofar. And in the end, both exist. What we'd like to do is to envelop Every din sound with a rachamim sound, before and after, to couch it and, and give it that setting, to surround din with rachamim. That's what happens when you surround the truer sound with the tkiya sound. We mentioned, I believe not too long ago, a fascinating concept, whereby the 13 middus, of, there's two sets of 13 middus, There's the 13 middos of rachamim, 13 measures of attributes of divine mercy. There's also 13 middos Shatur and adreshes bohem. There's also Rabbi Yishmael's 13 ways of of darshning out the Torah. And Rishonim and Achronim inform us that there are parallels between them. That is to say, generally we say, learning Torah arouses divine mercy. But more specifically, if you involve yourself in one of the middos, that of of medrash halacha, you arouse the corresponding midah of divine mercy. How do we know trua on Rosh Hashanah? Because the pasuk says it. But how do we know tkiyah? And tkiyah is a rachamim sound, as we said. Where does tkiyah come from? A gazira shava. Gazira shava is on the list of Rabbi Shmuel's. Halachic Principles. It's number two. Kalvachomer, Gezei Shava. What's number two on the list of the, the attributes? Yudgim Bidus? According to the Arizal and the Vilna Gaon, they start with Kael. Hashem Hashem is introduction, and then Kale is one, Rachum is two. What that means is that the very attribute that we're looking to arouse by sounding the Tkiya sound begins in the way that we derive the tia sound. From its inception, it's a rachamim sound because it, it, we know it in the mitzvah through the halachic principle that corresponds to racham, midah number two, otherwise known as gezei shava. So the way that it, we hope that it will help us on the day is actually the way that, it, that, that it's actually learnt out from the chumash, which is an amazing concept. And I think just to conclude, there is th- there's more to say here. Why do we say that the pshat of the posuk could represent more midas hadin, Truah is more the attribute of justice. Medrash is midas harakhami. Because when it comes to most of us, what is the attribute of justice if not judging us how we appear on the surface? the things that we've done wrong, if they're taken at face value, it doesn't augur very well for us. But where does Rachamim come from? Rachamim comes from from going deeper into the Jewish people and understanding that in light of their pure essence, wrongdoings do not reflect the truth of who they are. That's where the push for Rachamim comes from. One could almost say, therefore, that if Hashem looks at us in a pshat way, there could be trouble. But if he looks at us in a drash way, it, peeling away the layers and seeing what's underneath, that's where the case for Rachamim comes from. So Hashem, the Torah, and the Jewish people are all one, to the extent that you have this synergy whereby if when we darshan what's under the surface of the Torah, Hashem darshans what's under the surface of us. And that's where Rachamim comes from. That's why Darshaning Halacha brings to a, mood, a, a move for Rachamim. I think it's a whole different way of understanding, once again, another vantage point of the worlds of Pshat and Drash. If I could conclude, because I'm not saying this is Pshat, but it is very interesting that in Rosh Hashanah and in Yom Kippur, towards the end of Musaf, Mammash at the end, we have those Hayom's. Which follows the Aleph base, at least in the beginning. Hayom to hayom tevarcheinu, hayom Gadlenu. and then we say hayom tidrushenu Latova. Today, well, the simple translation, the simple translation of tidrushenu, may you seek us out for the good. perhaps, again, Aldera hadrash, hayom Tidrashenu Latova means, may today, may you darshan us for the good. May you expound us for the good. We want to be darshaned. We don't want to be confronted on a pshat level because there's too many problems there. But if but if you tidrishenu letova, so then <coughs> that's, where, that's where the, the hope for, for rachamim comes from. That's what we hope Hashem to do for us. But I think another way for, for that to happen is to do that to each other. Megillas Esther ends with Mordechai described as Doresh Tovla amo. Doresh Tovla amo sometimes if you want things to be well for people, you also need to go a little bit deeper into them. If you take them at face value, you might dismiss them out of hand. So perhaps if we in each other in Latova, that further augurs that Hashem should Darshan Ash Latova. So we've had quite very discussions this evening, from the world of Medrash Gadol in the beginning to Halacha and Minag in the middle, back to the worlds of Pshat and Drash. Certainly, I believe uh, food for thought. And we need Rachamim, and Hashem should be Deros Aslatova, And the coming days should should uh, be turned back towards in direction of Tova. They should be Amim Tovim, LeSassan UleSimcha. Amen.